Happy Saturday. It's July 23rd, 2022, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker. And I'm Michael Haney. And we are two of your deputy editors here at Airmail. Good morning, Ashley. Good morning, Michael. It's already 87 degrees, I'm sorry to say. That's 30 degrees cooler than it has been in London, so. (laughs) Friends on the other side of the pond, we are thinking of you and sending you our best wishes for a cold drink. Yeah, not good. This is pretty miserable. It's like, I think the theme of this week's episode is going to be heat, because not only is it sweltering outside and the political situation in many parts of the world is heating up, but also we've got some interesting action happening in the bedrooms of some people that we would rather not be knowing about, which we'll be talking about here today on the show. Whoa. Okay. Wow. Coming in hot. Bring in the heat. Well, I'm sorry. Ever since I read this news about Elon Musk's dad, I haven't been able to stop thinking about it. Did you read this? What, that he's basically going to single-handedly repopulate the world? Yeah. So Errol Musk, who is the patriarch of the Musk family, is 76 years old, and he's apparently been approached by a company in Colombia that would like to, how shall I say this, purchase some of his sperm. Actually, they want him to donate it, but they're going to put him up in a five-star hotel and give him a first-class ticket to make this donation. Because after all, he did father the world's richest man. So there might be some women in Colombia who are hoping to have a similar effect. I don't know, but this grossed me out beyond belief. Well... Maybe it's going to be a little theme of the issue today. We've got some great guests, Jim Kelly, Linda Wells, all talking about men of power of a certain age. So we'll get to them in a bit and you'll learn more about their insights on that subject. I'd like to pause and just with a note of admiration, Michael, for how quickly you pivoted away from the topic of Elon Musk's father's sperm, because I was going to get into the whole thing with his daughter, but you stopped me. Thank you. You can keep going. I'm just trying to keep the guardrails on the show right now. Well, I'm just going to say this is also the same guy who fathered two children with his stepdaughter who at last count was in her 30s. So he's 76. You do the math. Well, on a different note, you all know that Ivana Trump died this week. And we have a revealing story now by the writer Ivana Lowell. Ivana Lowell is a writer and the author of an unbelievably riveting memoir called Why Not Say What Happened? And she has written about how she was befriended by Ivana Trump some years ago in the most unlikeliest of settings, while the two of them were at a rehab center in California. While Ivana Lowell spent many hours at therapy, she reveals that Ivana Trump had a much different approach. So please welcome Ivana Lowell. All right, Ivana, tell us exactly about your experience with Ivana Trump, the other Ivana, if you will. We want to hear exactly what happened in your own words. I checked into a rehab in Malibu, a very sort of exclusive high-class rehab, which was kind of loosey-goosey with the rules, but it was still meant to be a sort of 12-step program. We had to attend meetings. And my first day, I was looking at the whiteboard and my, my name was like Ivana, 9.30, group, 9.00. After that, lots of my schedule. And then I heard this commotion behind me and it was this woman screaming, saying, I am not Ivana. I am Maria. I am Maria. I'm Maria. And I sort of turned around and saw this very sort of blonde, large lady with a very, very good beehive. And she said, I am not Ivana. And I said, I am Ivana. My name is Ivana. And then she softened and she was actually kind of, kind of sweet. And she said, you're Ivana? And I said, yes, my name is Ivana. And she said, oh, darling, oh, we must be friends. And from then on, we were sort of kind of soulmates in this, in this rather strange way. So we were both in 
rehab, she wasn't really adhering to the rules. She had her boyfriend with her. My other inmates, as we called each other, were not exactly, they didn't really get it. They were like, who, who, who is she? We became friends. Um, Ivana, we haven't heard a lot from her friends. I mean, aside from Dennis Basso, who's been doing quite a few interviews, what was she like as a person? Why was she pleasant company to hang out with? She was very generous. She was sort of sweet in a way. Being in rehab is a very, very strange situation. You're in this microcosm of of everything that you sort of doubt about yourselves and you tell your most intimate, intimate secrets. And she sort of softened me and she was giving me advice about don't marry. I had a problem with the boyfriend. She was, don't marry him, darling, you know, unless you have the money, unless he has the money. And then <laughs> she, she was very much about some material things, but she was also very, very maternal. And I, and my mum had died. And so I was, I was sort of feeling rather lost and she became just so, so very maternal and sweet and, we became friends. Yeah, you just described it as a loosey-goosey rehab, but you m- followed the um, kind of uh, schedule of each day. But it seems that Ivana and her boyfriend had, had other ideas on, on what rehab meant, right? They- oh, no, completely different. They disappeared in their, in their convertible, this red convertible. And then she would go out to lunch with friends in Malibu and then she would come go shopping in Santa Barbara and she'd come back with big shopping bags. And we were all sitting like in group watching as this car pulled up and Ivana and Ricardo, I think his name was, but maybe it was called, I don't even know. They were both under assumed names. So that was odd enough, but they would just be sort of joking about it. And they were, they were allowed to go out to lunch and have champagne. At lunch, and we're in rehab talking about 12-step programs, and she would swan in, shopping bags, you know, in tow, and then trip, trip, trip in her little high heels up the stairs, up the marble stairs, and, and then come down and then join when she felt she could. I don't know why the rules didn't apply to her, but they didn't. <laughs> rules don't apply to a Trump, that's why. No, they never have, and they never will. I mean, they're just, you're a Trump and you don't do things like other people do. And you're in a $15,000 a night rehab and it's the most expensive rehab. And then we had this mad dinner where she's ordering champagne and we're all like, well, you set that up for us because it, it's you tell it so mesmerizingly in the piece. So you all you all get to basically like you're completing rehab, and then Ivana wants to take everyone to dinner, right? No, she, she, she's like, it's my treat, it's my treat, darling, it's my treat. And she picked. I think we were only eight of us. We went on this. The, the, I'm not even naming the rehab because it'll just you know, anyway. We all went on the bus to dinner, and she ordered bottles of champagne to say thank you for all my friends and my being so helpful. And, and I, I turned and I said, this is going to be the most expensive drink you have ever had. If you, if, you, if you have that bottle of champagne, every sort of good thing we have done in the like the 12 steps and admitting that we were, yeah, whatever one does in rehab, which is, it was mad. It was completely mad, slightly impossible. And I don't know how she 
I don't even know how she arranged it, that we were all sort of sitting in this restaurant and she could order champagne and, and congratulate us all on a wonderful experience when the whole point of us being there was that we were meant to be kind of getting sober. A toast to our sobriety. A toast to our sobriety. Exactly, exactly. That, that's the perfect way of putting it. But it, it was surreal, but it was also so memorable. And, and I kind of love her for it. We had fun and rehab isn't fun, but we did. And her room was lovely. It was overlooking the ocean and she had all her cosmetics and she had all her stuff and all our stuff was sort of taken away. When you go into rehab, they take your sharps, like everything, like nail files and things as, as, as if you're going to kill yourself, which I had no desire to do that. But she managed to keep everything. I want to ask you, though, you, you alluded earlier to, you know, she told you some stories about the former... Hated him. Hated him. Okay, let's just get right to the point. She hated him. He was abusive. He was awful. I mean, yes, absolutely hated Hated, hated, hated him. And I would agree with her. <laughs> I mean, I, I can't say anything more about it, but that was, yes, of course, you'd say he was awful. But she's now passed and her children probably don't want to hear anything like this about her, but, but she hated him. He was abusive. I mean, all, the, all these sort of awful stories, really, really terrible stories about him. What we're seeing now in the wake of her death is all part of Trump's mythology as well. I mean, you saw him standing behind the golden casket and presiding over her funeral in a rather bizarre way for an ex-husband. It makes me want to vomit. It's so hypocritical. He, 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 he was loathsome towards her. And I, I don't know why she was shut up. I have no idea why she didn't say anything, but he was president. And I guess she, I don't know. I have no idea, but she was so, so adamant that he was the most vile person she'd ever met. And I agreed. Yeah, he was abusive. He was everything that the one, uh, next husband could, I mean, the worst. And that was her theme during all our sort of, all our talks. And he'll probably come after me with an FBI agent, but I mean, he was just ghastly to her. Did you two stay in touch afterward? We had lunch and no alcohol. <laughs> and she was very, very sweet. And then we sort of lost, then we kind of lost touch. I, 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 don't, I don't know. I, I sold my apartment and, and I didn't see that much of her again. But we did have a couple of lunches, which was really, I mean, it was so, it was nice. She was, I can't, I can't even express that she was a, she was a really sweet lady. She just was. I, can't explain it, but she was tough as hell. But she gave and she gave me some really good advice. And I was like, okay. My mom never gave me any advice about anything, but Ivana did. And I listened. Her relationship with Donald, I don't know what happened with that. I don't know if he paid her off or whatever. She was lovely. She was a nice girl, a nice friend to have. If you have her in your corner, she was a good person to have in your corner. Well, Ivana, on that note, I think we will say thank you so much for sharing your anecdotes and for your wonderful story in Airmail. We really appreciate it. Oh, no. Thank you so much for having me. It was lovely to talk to you. Thank you for your time, Ivana. We've got a lot to talk about here. First and foremost, Vladimir Putin is the nightmare that just keeps on recurring. And we've got Jim Kelly on to talk about fascinating new book. Take it away, Michael. We've got one of our favorite guests back this week, Jim Kelly, our books editor, who did a great conversation with our 
author named Philip Short, who, as Jim says, made a name for himself with biographies of Mao Zedong and Pol Pot, obviously men of complicated personalities and powerful men. And he's back with a book on Vladimir Putin called Simply Putin. It's coming out next week. And as Jim said, Short is uniquely qualified not just to explore the life of Putin, but to place him in the context of these times in Russian history and explains why the West, especially the U.S., has good reason to worry about Putin. Jim sat down with him, and he's going to talk about what he learned from Short that we all need to know and what will inform your perspectives about Putin going forward. So please, let's welcome one of our favorite guests, Airmail's Books editor, Jim Kelly. Welcome, Jim. So, Jim, tell us what you learned in the book and, and why you were so fascinated by it. Well, it's interesting. First of all, everything you need to know about Vladimir Putin is in this book. It's, it's not a short book. That's not a criticism because what he does, Philip does the two things particularly well. The first is he gives the best look I've ever seen of Putin's early years in Leningrad. He grew up in, I mean, it's now St. Petersburg, but he grew up when it was Leningrad and he didn't come from a rich family. He was not a particularly good student. He was almost sent to reform school because he was always getting into fights. He was short for his age, so he had to be particularly aggressive in fighting off bullies. What I think gave him the kind of self-discipline and control that made him be who he is and not just another short kid from St. Petersburg is that he got so interested in judo. And we've seen pictures of him dressed in judo outfits, and but we've also seen pictures of him bare-chested on horseback and pictures of him scuba diving. But I'm not so sure Americans fully realize just how good this kid was at age 15, 16 in, in judo. He was a national champion and could easily have gone further if he didn't then decide to go to law school. And he really sort of grew up in the Leningrad slash St. Petersburg municipality. What's interesting, too, is was not a foregone conclusion when Boris Yeltsin stepped down in 1999 that Putin succeed him. There were many other more likely candidates, frankly, people with real foreign policy and economic credentials. But Putin made a promise to Yeltsin that he would not in any way, shape, or form prosecute Yeltsin and his cronies for any corruption charges, which were swirling around Yeltsin and his colleagues very much so back then. Basically, he came to power already willing to overlook shall we say, some of the financial transgressions of fellow Russians, which, again, is, is a large reason why he has remained in power all these years. He's, he's reached an understanding with businessmen that as long as you can do your business, as long as you give me your political support. And so there's, there's nothing like the so-called oligarchs do not at all have the kind of political power they had in the 90s under Yeltsin when they could actually help dictate policy. There's no oligarch in Russia who thinks the war in Ukraine is a good idea. So he's very good at that, how Putin came to power. What he's also good at, I think, is placing Putin in the context of the political forces that have been swirling around the Soviet Union and now Russia for the last few decades. Philip is, he's not an apologist for Putin in any way, but what is so good about his book, it's it's not so much a corrective of what the West thinks about Putin, but what it does do is it puts you very much in Putin's shoes and allows you to see the world from his viewpoint. And though his rationale may be inexcusable, 
you do understand his rationale. And Putin had very little respect for Donald Trump. We asked Philip whether Putin would welcome a second Trump presidency. And Philip says something interesting. When everything is said and done, he probably would because what Trump did was create or further create kind of divisiveness that has afflicted American politics over the last 10, 20 years. And an America consumed with itself is is better for Russia than an America that's facing entirely outward. But Putin was not happy with Trump's unpredictability and, in fact, thought that Biden would be better in terms of listening to his concerns about Ukraine becoming part of NATO. But that wasn't the way Biden was built. So that's why he invaded Ukraine. He, he, he certainly got the attention of the West. And Philip is not entirely optimistic that this is going to end anytime soon or end with a strategic defeat of Russia. Putin very much feels that the West is out to get Russia. That's somewhat paranoid. But what Philip does so expertly is explain all the things that the U.S. and the West have done that could be interpreted by someone who already is sensitive about Russia's place in history, could take offense at. The other thing that was so interesting, by the way, is people keep talking about Putin's health. He doesn't look good. He His hands seem to be shaking a lot and all that. Philip will have none of this. He said this is all wishful thinking. There's, he has no illness and that Putin is going to be around for the next 10 or 15 years in some way or another, maybe not as, as the president of Russia. And I found that interesting. As Philippine, you discuss, Putin may change his tactics, but his strategic goal, which is why the struggle with America, as he said, is not going to end soon. And in fact, as you guys both note, this drama is going to play out over decades to come, especially now that China is joined with Russia and basically determined to see an end to America's global hegemony, right? I think that's very well put. I absolutely agree with you that this is what's become much starker in the last few months is Russia and China have obviously many, many differences. But one thing they feel very strongly about is the so-called American century really is over as far as they're concerned, and America doesn't recognize that yet. Jim, you've given us a lot to think about and also a lot to worry about, but it sounds like this is a pretty unmissable book that we should all be picking up this summer. Yes, it is very good. I'm not out to worry anybody, by the way. And by the way, this is not a book you want to bring to the beach. I would read this in a little bit every evening, but it is if I sound like his publisher and I don't mean to. But if you're going to read one 700 page book about Vladimir Putin, this is the book. Jim Kelly, the man, the myth, the legend. We thank you and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Okay, see you in London. Have a great summer. Thank you, Jim. (laughs) Bye, Jim. Bye. Well, always good to talk to Jim. Putin has been top of mind lately, not only, I mean, in my universe, for more shallow reasons, Michael. I don't know if you're aware of the fact that there's been some chatter on the internets about his appearance. Is he taking steroids? Is he having Botox done? Has he had a facelift? What on earth is going on? And so naturally, I had to go to the ultimate source to get the real scoop on this information, which is our fearless beauty and wellness columnist, the one and only Linda Wells. Linda was not only the founding editor of Allure, where she edited the magazine for 25 years, but she's also an icon in this business and knows everything there is to know. So we started talking about Putin, but then we ended up having a very interesting discourse about men in power and what they're doing to their appearances. And she tackles that in her column this week. We're so happy to have her with us to discuss IRL. Welcome, Linda Wells. 
Michael, if you're silent during this conversation, it's perfectly okay. Linda and I have it covered, but you might want to step up and represent your gender because we're tackling male beauty. Welcome, Linda. Hello, male beauty. Michael, we're talking to you. (laughs) He's blushing already. Oh... Have at it. I've got questions. You've got answers. Let's go. We hope. Okay. Linda, we started off this conversation talking about Joe Biden and his hair plugs. Then we moved on to Vladimir Putin and his eerily youthful appearance. We're seeing this happen in Hollywood and politics. Why are powerful men falling prey to all the same beauty schemes and mishaps that we women have been falling for for decades? Do you think it's prey or do you think that they're taking advantage of what's available to them? I mean, I think it's a kind of point of view. I kind of like the fact that they've got the ability to do the things that other people have been indulging in. And I'm one, try not to be judgmental about this. So I think if they want to do it and if it looks good, go for it. For the record, Linda is on the record as supporting Joe Biden's hair plugs. Can we say that? They look good now. I think at the beginning, they look pretty terrible. And that was because it was a primitive surgery at the beginning. It was like, it really looked like plugs. And they were, you could almost kind of count them. But I also think that was partly because they're dark hair against pale skin. And so they were very obvious. And as his hair has turned gray, I mean, I think he looks great. I don't love the teeth. I think the teeth are a little much. Well, you spoke with Dr. Lowenberg, correct? Who had some views on Joe Biden's teeth. What was his take? Well, his take is he doesn't know exactly whether veneers are crowns, but his assumption is they are crowns because veneers are translucent and crowns are not. They're opaque. And what people don't consider or someone in the public eye might not consider when they're getting these things is when you're photographed, the translucency looks natural and the opacity looks like fake teeth. So they're too white. They're too fake. They don't look like they belong on him. They're kind of choppers. Oh, the other thing is he didn't do his lower teeth. And this is common among celebrities. They think that when they look in the mirror, they only see their upper teeth. So they think the world sees their upper teeth and not their lower ones. But when you're talking, you see people's lower teeth. So it's not a good idea to have great upper teeth and terrible lower teeth. But nevertheless, we have to analyze these things. Why do they care so much? And I guess they're in the public eye. So obviously they're seeing pictures of themselves, but that's one of the things I feel like politicians have been somewhat immune to this. And it just makes you feel a little suspect because as much as I don't want to be judgmental, I do think that being that kind of vanity and everyone's vain, but to do something about it and to do something as elaborate as surgery that requires expense and downtime and risk, that's a big step. So I think that this is sort of a new territory. But isn't part of it, and this is one of my questions, Linda, I mean, you mentioned the V word vanity, but there'd be another V word, I think that would be either front of mind or somewhere in the deep recesses of people like Putin and Biden and even Trump, which is virility, right? And the idea that these are guys who their perception of themselves as powerful and attractive and virile would go towards, do I have hair? Are my teeth all in place? And is my face not sagging, right? Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that that's Trump's big thing too. And it was always his biggest criticism of other people was they're weak and I'm powerful. And so this notion of power, I mean, you see it in the kind of ridiculousness, obviously with the hair comb over and that whole complication. But to me, it sort of, it highlights the opposite. You're trying so hard to hide it that it ends up making you look- You draw attention to it. And you're drawing attention to it and you look like you care too much. 
And really powerful people don't care that much. Yeah, that's the fine line between a little nip and a tuck and used to be does she or doesn't she? Now it's does he or doesn't he? But it's pretty apparent that he does for many people, right? Right. And then we talk a little bit about Tom Cruise because we can't talk about great looking men over a certain age without thinking about Tom Cruise and Top Gun. And I had dinner with someone who knows one of his trainers, I assume he has many, and said that one of the reasons that he reshot the parts of Top Gun that were shot before COVID was he didn't like the way he looked and what he saw. So he got in shape and then reshot it. So anything's possible. But to me, Tom Cruise is, if you're going to be concerned about vanity and virility as a man, I guess the lessons there would be start early, right? Maintain early. And then the adjustments are not seen as radical reshapings. They're seen, and many women know this, right? You sort of like women now start doing their procedures even in their 30s, right? Well, I mean, we're now seeing people who are doing Botox in their 20s and they call it preventive Botox. And so this idea that if the area of the face is frozen and paralyzed and can't move, then you can't form the wrinkles. And there's actual facts attached to that. So as shocking as it is to think of 24-year-old going in to get Botox, it's happening. Linda, one of the biggest revelations that you unearthed in the course of your reporting is this notion that the beard can hide a multitude of sins. We were talking about Jared Leto and the fact that he looks essentially the same as he looked in my so-called life. My favorite shows are early to mid nineties, but the Jordan Catalano vibe is alive and well with him largely because he has all of this facial hair. What is going on underneath? Will we ever know? We don't know. And it's the greatest gig going. I mean, you've got to realize like what could be better than growing a really gorgeous, luscious Jared Leto beard? And you don't know. Does he have a weak chin? We will never know. Does he have sagging, smile lines, jowls? I mean, he's 50. It's not like he's decrepit. Pretty much when you're 50, you still look 30, in my opinion. But when you get to be 60, it's a whole different story. So yeah, you have that to look forward to. So I mean, I think the beard and the long hair is a pretty good scheme. It's got to be executed in the right way. Here's a guy who grew a beard in all the wrong ways, and he's got the swept back hair. You look at Ted Cruz, which is, it looks like the Lost Weekend beard, right? It's splotchy, doesn't come in all the way. And you're just like, if you're going to do it, you've got to have that full. There's Jared on one hand, and then there's David Letterman, who's gone full Rip Van Winkle, right? So he's got the full ZZ Top look, but it's somewhere in between there, right? Uh, Ted Cruz got the beard he deserved. (laughs) Nothing about him is good. Wait, Linda, I have one question on behalf of men. So is there a cosmetic procedure deal breaker for you in terms of what a man would do? Or is it, it's not a specific enhancement, it's the execution of that deal breaker? It's definitely the execution because just like for women, good surgery, you can't put your finger on it. You don't really know what it is. And there are very famous women that we, people think, oh, you know, I want to age like fill in the blank. And you get these names over and over again. And I know for a fact that these women have had plastic surgery and facelifts. And so it's good work doesn't announce itself. And I think that the challenge for a lot of men is that there's a feminization that happens sometimes with cosmetic surgery. And I know we're not supposed to use those gender terms, whatever, but you know, it's like the face can start to look less masculine. It looks a little soft. and there, Or it's just the proportions are off and it can be a very unappealing result. And we've seen that. We can all think of people, celebrities and things who have that done. And I think that that's the hard trick 
with men with surgery is that it's traditionally a, something that's performed on women. People specialize in women's faces and the surgeon has to really think about how do you maintain the integrity of the face? I love it. Okay. Well, Linda, we'll talk again soon as we always do. I thank you as always for your insight and your humor, but also a wonderful column in airmail. Do not miss this week's Eye of the Beholder. You will enjoy it all weekend. And if not, don't blame me. All right. Bye. Bye. See you soon. Bye. Michael, and with that note, that is officially the last time I talk about Top Gun Maverick here on the show. I'm done. I don't think it's going to be your last time talking about Top Gun Maverick. can't help it. I loved it so much, like everybody else in America, it seems. Okay, we do have to talk about another addictive thing to do this summer, if you haven't done it already, which is to say, have you ever traveled through Europe by train? I'm so excited about this story. I have, and I love it. And I think that this story is the perfect solution every time you sort of like either talk to a friend who's been traveling or you look at what's the coverage in the press about the nightmare situation of flying, lost luggage, canceled flights, delays, and people's vacation plans, holiday plans falling apart this summer. If you're going to Europe or thinking about going to Europe, this is the perfect solution for how to get around, right? Indeed. This story in airmail, if there's one thing that you read this week... This should be it. Sorry to say it, because this has so many great ideas for trips, and many of them are extremely affordable. The entire itinerary is there, including where to stay, which hotels to hang out at, which restaurants to visit even, and gives you a sense of the pricing as well. So this is service journalism at its finest, ladies and gentlemen. So whether you want to go to Spain or Germany or France or Italy or England or wherever, we have got ideas for you. Right. It's eight unforgettable train trips through Europe. You've got different routes from the Côte d'Azur in France to Spain by train. One of mine is going to Italy on the Red Arrow, which is London, Paris, Lyon, Turin, and Milan as stops. You can do the grand capitals of Central Europe, London, Paris, Vienna, Bratislava, Budapest, Prague, and Krakow. But yeah, which one would you take, Ashley? Oh, I'd like to go to Germany, but mainly mm. just because that's been on my travel list for a while now. I haven't been in a very long time, so I'm dying to get back there. If you've never traveled by train through Europe, it's one of the great pleasures and get a great sleeper berth. Even if you can't do one of these major trips. Really think about it. There's been a rise in train travel by the Gen Zs and millennials who have, for reasons of climate awareness, are sort of going away from those short city-to-city plane travel and embracing train travel again as a more viable and less eco-damaging alternative. When I did my year abroad in France when I was in college, I took basically the last month of classes and traveled through Italy and Germany and by train and had such an incredible time. I will never forget picking up, the pro move of course, is to pick up a huge bag of food at the grocery store on your way out or pick up some sandwiches from a, a spectacular little shop by the Gare du Nord or whatever and just eat and drink your way through some of the most gorgeous scenery imaginable. You will never, ever forget it. It's like our story is basically the college student Eurail Pass 2.0. It's how to do it as an adult. It's extremely valuable. If you haven't made your plans yet and you're still thinking everything's booked and how am I getting around, this is your solution. Okay, I lied. I said that if you only read one story in airmail this week, it should be the story about train trips through Europe, but mm, probably wrong. It actually should be Joanna Berkman's incredible feat of reporting about the trials and tribulations of Jumi Bello, who was on track to be a major writer. And then all of a sudden her debut novel was shelved, actually dropped 
as she was accused of plagiarism. And this is a story that it starts off with Jimmy Bello here in New York telling Joanna about exactly what happened. And it takes us back to the Isle Writers Workshop where she earned her MFA to the annals of publishing here in New York and far beyond. It's a wonderful story. and But it's stranger than fiction. And what you find out is here's a rising literary star accused of plagiarism, sees her novel canceled, and then repeats the crime of plagiarism when she's trying to explain why she plagiarized. So it's a fascinating psychological profile of this writer and understanding what happened to her. And there's going to be a lot of discussion about this online, and I can't wait to read what people have to say. On that note, Ashley, of all things creative and cultural. Do you have anything to recommend this week? Funny you should ask. All right, our TV show of the week. Actually, you might have a TV show of the week, but I've got one too. It's called The Rehearsal. It is on HBO Max and it is the new show from Nathan Fielder. Have you seen this yet? I watched one and talk about cringe-inducing. It was cringe-inducing. Yeah, another theme for today's episode could be stranger than fiction because this is really a bizarre... Nathan Fielder is, I suppose you could call him a comic, but he's really a provocative, thoughtful storyteller on television. And what he does is he enlists real people and tries to solve their problems in various ways, coming to the rescue and all sorts of interesting incarnations. And in the rehearsal, he essentially gives real people the opportunity to stage events that are important events in their lives before they happen so that they have a rehearsal for the main event. And it's really a story about the way that people work and the absurdity of our own preoccupations. And that's what I like so much about Fielder and and his process. I think he really gets to the heart of the ways that we occupy our time and the absurdities of some of our interactions. Yeah, so it's called The Rehearsal. It's on HBO Max. Enjoy. Great. And Michael, what about you? Yes, I do. It's called The Old Man. And I was tipped to this by our esteemed airmail contributor, James Walcott. And now if you're one of the people who believe, like I do, that Jeff Bridges is a national treasure and actor, you'll love The Old Man which is now on FX. And if you're one of the few people who doesn't know how great it is to watch Jeff Bridges build and inhabit a role, then this is your chance to watch him in a show which is set in a world I always can't get enough of, espionage. Bridges plays an aged CIA operative who absconded 30 years earlier during the depths of the Cold War, loaded with secrets of his time as an agent during the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. And now his past has caught up with him. But the other treat here, speaking of great actors, is that the operative assigned to bring him in from the cold is John Lithgow. Bum, bum, bum. So you get to see two giants go at it. It's a smart, sneaky, moody thriller, The Old Man on FX. All right, great. Lots to talk about, lots to discuss, and lots to watch. We thank you all for joining us. Michael, always a treat. Always a treat. Let's get coffee again soon. (laughs) I'll keep my shirt on, as always. (laughs) Great. And so will I. And on that note, we wish you all a wonderful weekend full of cool beverages, cool ideas, and cool books. And Michael, on that note, will you please read us out? Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan. And our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, and Julie Vitale. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with an 
another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thanks again for joining us.